Thank you, choir. You know, it is uh, Labor Day weekend. Typically, we have a good number of folks that are out uh, from our church on Labor Day weekend. My family and I, we actually took a little trip uh, to start off Labor Day weekend. We left out Friday after we picked up Hannah from school, and uh, we took off down to Jacksonville. And uh, from time to time, we like to scoot down there and just spend a night or so and have fun with the kids. And, you know, whenever you get a hotel room anywhere, it doesn't matter where it is or what there is to see. If there's a pool involved, then it's vacation time for the kids. And so we, uh, we had a great time. We went on uh, Priceline and, and got us a room uh, the day we left. You know, Priceline, that is the Christian version of gambling, I've heard. And so... <laughs> We uh, you know, went on Priceline and got a room, and uh, I was real excited because, you know, you, if you've ever used Priceline, you know, you name your price, obviously, that's what makes it what it is, and so I bid 40 bucks. We usually get a room for about $40 at the airport there in Jacksonville, so we, a nice hotel typically, and so we put $40 in, and I didn't get my bid. And so I lost. You know, the hotels beat me. And so you had to bid again. And in Priceline, you have to expand your search, which means you have to possibly include somewhere you don't want to be, or you have to raise your price. And so I did that, and I raised my price. I went up to 45 bucks, and I got a, a one, right? I, got a, I hit the jackpot. I got a hotel, the Hyatt. I got a Hyatt for $45. And so that was exciting to me. So you know, the kids get to swim in the pool, and we had a good time. We go to the... Go to the uh, to the uh, zoo on Saturday yesterday. We came back. Well, when we checked out before we took off to go to the zoo, I'm walking out of the hotel and, uh, you know, I made sure that we didn't know anything else, which we didn't. And so I'm making my way out. It's just a modern hotel, just real nice, well done. It looked like it was new or at least newly renovated. And if you're traveling with kids now, we, for at least for us, for our kids, our kids are always hungry. And so it's good to snag up some extra food wherever you are. And so I'm walking out, and I see this just beautiful display of apples, you know, like hotels we usually have out, and uh, just pretty shiny yellow apples there. And I, so I asked the guy, I said, hey, do you mind if I snag a couple of these, you know, on the way out? And he said, they're fake. <laughs> so I feel about this big, and, you know, I feel about this smart, you know, as well. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, I kind of learned my lesson. But, you know, when I think about that, in a sense... That is not too far from resembling where a lot of us at times have been, and maybe where some may be even now, in walks with God. You know, it's really easy to have everything on the outside look like it's supposed to be. And if we're not careful, we can come to a point to where our outside Christian life looks really, really sharp, and it looks like the real thing. It looks authentic. We as a church can go through all the motions. We can offer all the programs. We can do all the things we need to do that seem like this is a place where God is at work. But let me just say, I've been in enough churches, and there have been times in my own life where I've been able to go through the motions, and I've been able to look like everything was okay. But on the inside, I felt a real distance from God. And even though you may have never known it or a person in my presence may have never known it, there's been a, a points in my life, and, and I'm sure they'll come again because we all as Christians go through dry seasons in our life where our faith is tested, where even though everything looks so good on the outside, on the inside, we feel maybe a real struggle in our faith, a real struggle in our walk. And as churches, if we're not careful, we can even go further to the point to where we can be doing everything properly on the outside. Everything looks good, everything sounds good, everything smells good, but at, at the heart of who we are, it seems as though God maybe has been absent for a long, long period period of time. And there are many churches, I believe, that probably are found in this country where on the outside they're flashy and things are great and things are, it appears as a place where somebody would want to go, but it has been years perhaps since God seemingly has even shown up there. And the power of God is absent and the work of God seems to be nowhere to be found. And yet in the first century church where we look, it was evident. They did not have all those trappings of the outside. They didn't have all the, all the things to keep up with. They didn't have all the elements of trying to look good. They simply, at the core of who they were, experienced the power of God on a daily basis. And so what I want us to look at this morning as we finish out chapter 5 
is a passage of Scripture. It's an interesting passage of Scripture, but one that I believe applies to us as a church. Now, let me just say two things. Number one, I don't typically preach messages that are aimed at being a, quote, better church. And I try not to even preach messages that are aimed at do-better type Christianity. I believe what God aims for for us is not that we constantly try to do better, not to say there's not a standard in our lives. He wants us to be more relying, more dependent, more surrendered to Him. And so for us as a church, uh, we don't often look at how we can do things better, so to speak. But we do hopefully constantly look at how we can be more reliant upon the power of the Holy Spirit to be the church God's called us to be. This morning is going to be one of those kinds of messages. It's going to be a challenge for those of us who are part of this body of Christ, part of this congregation, to trust God like never before and to serve Him and to want with Him closer than we ever have. And so if you're one of our first-time guests or maybe you've been here for just a few times, this morning will be a time for you perhaps to have an opportunity to Look a little bit at where God's challenging us in some areas where we can uh, seek to glorify Him even more than we've been able to here in this recent past. You know, second reason that I don't really often preach messages geared towards and aimed at the church is because there are a lot of us who come and we need, <laughs> we need God's work in our life. You know, we just need to know how God can heal the hurt that's in our heart, know how God can give us direction for the choices we make, how God can give us some hope in the midst of trying circumstances. And so most often, for me, I'm just most comfortable preaching to a person rather than to a church. But this morning is going to be a time where we hopefully will be challenged as part of the body of Christ, part of God's family that he's planted here as First Baptist of the Islands. It's Labor Day weekend. One of my first thoughts was, you know, why preach a message like this when so many of our folks are going to be gone well, that's not for me to choose. Yeah, I just follow where the text leads and try to apply it the best way possible. So this morning, I hope you'll be challenged. And uh, maybe for some, even our cage will be rattled just a bit to be who God has called us to be. You've heard me say before that potential is a good thing up to a certain point. And there's a point where potential is no longer good. You know, if you're a 19-year-old ball player, for example, and you're in the minor leagues, you're playing baseball, single-A, double-A level, trying to make it to the big leagues, potential is a good thing. Potential is good in the life of a 19-year-old, but if you're a 45-year-old and you're still in single-A and all they're talking about is your potential and what you've not done, then that's not a good thing. That's borderline tragic. You know, there's a point where tra- uh, uh, potential has to move to the realm of reality. And if potential does not ultimately make the leap to what is reality, then ultimately that becomes tragic by its nature. You know, for a long time, this church has been spoken of as a church with great potential. We're in the heart of this island. A lot of lost people that live around here that need a relationship with Christ. We've got a lot of great people who have a real heart for the Lord. Many of you serve the Lord already so faithfully. You give faithfully. You love the Lord with all your heart. There has been a lot of potential here for a long time. But I believe, and I'm not a prophet, and I don't claim to be, but I believe that we're coming to a point to where God has positioned us in such a way, and he's molded us, and he's made us a little bit more healthy over the period of time that we've gone through. I believe that God is bringing us to a point to where it's time to move from potential to the realm of reality. And reality does not mean we have more people for the sake of having more people. Reality doesn't mean the budget grows. Reality doesn't mean we come to phase two to build some other building. Reality means we're able to see the work of God, a genuine work of God that is accomplished in our lives and through our lives and to the point to where we can see a community and a city and even beyond that transformed for the glory of God. Now, I would never have enjoyed God's call in my life to be a pastor if I did not believe that change could come as a result of it. I don't enjoy, and you're just the same, I don't enjoy spinning wheels with nothing to show for it. I believe that God has planted us as a church here on these islands for the purpose of reaching people and of making a difference in the call, for the cause of Christ in eternity in a way that can be measured in eternity, but that can be measured here as well. God wants us to be a part of seeing people's lives changed and transformed. 
And as we see in the book of Acts, what we, what we recognize here, what I've recognized very quickly, is that there is a tension that exists. Here's part of the tension that exists for me. As I look at these early believers and these early followers of Christ, and what I see in their lives creates a tension in my own life because there are many areas of my own walk that fall so far short of where these men and where these women were in their yielded, surrendered lives to Christ. I mean, they were all out. They were both feet in. They were 100% totally sold out in the deep end, seeking to live life to the glory of God. And when I read through the book of Acts, just through this fifth chapter, man, I'm just telling you, there is a tension that is created in my walk that is a healthy tension that calls me to a life of authentic surrender to Jesus, the way these early believers lived. But there is also, if we're honest with ourselves, there is also a tension that is created in the body of Christ, the local church. And I can't speak to any other specifically except this one. There is a tension created for we as a church, part of the First Baptist Church of the Islands, that calls us to a deeper walk, to a greater intentional focus, to reach where God has planted us with the gospel. And so to me, as we come to the close of this chapter, chapter 5, I believe we see a great picture of what God intends for us to be. He's not speaking specifically to the body of Christ, but as we pull out this passage that we're going to look at, I believe there are a couple of applications that really hit home for us as a part of First Baptist Church of the Islands. And so for us to really begin to be who God's called us to be, we're going to have to wrestle with some hard questions. I understand that. We're going to have to really grapple with some questions that we have a tendency just to breeze over. One question is is this. If we truly believe what the Bible says, for example, about hell, if we really believe that hell is a real place, that it exists just as the Bible uh, describes it, that it's a place where there is eternal torment and it's because of the sins of people that have never been forgiven because of their rejection of the Savior, Jesus. If we truly believe what the Bible says about hell and its existence and its reality, then the question we have to wrestle with is, why is it then so easy for us to live in such a way where the gospel is not advanced more intentionally through our lives? If we truly, honestly believe what the Bible says about hell, and if we truly understand that there are family members and there are neighbors and there are co-workers and people that we love that perhaps are headed that direction because they don't have a relationship with Christ, why is it so easy for us, believing it to be true, to just live as though it's not? Why is it so easy for us as well? Second question, believing if we do in the lordship of Jesus Christ, that no person can come into a relationship with God unless we turn from sin and surrender our lives to Christ, calling on Him as Lord. And if we really truly believe that He has to be first in our lives and we surrender everything to Him or else we do not know Him personally, if we truly believe that, why is it so easy for us to live lives that do not evidence the fact that He is Lord on a daily basis? Why is it so easy for us to live such a way Monday through Saturday and sometimes half a Sunday? Why is it so easy for us to engage in things and think in ways, do things that don't evidence the Lordship of Christ? Why do our lives at times resemble so much more of the world and so little of who Christ is? And why does that not bother us? Why do we not wrestle with that on a daily basis? If we truly believe that God's desire for every believer is Romans 8, 29, that we be conformed, molded, shaped into the image of Christ, that we be conformed to the point to where we look like a reflection of Christ in our lives the way we live. If we truly believe that, if we honestly say, I believe that's God's desire for us, the Bible is true, He wants me to be like Jesus, then why do we so easily gravitate away from the things that God wants to use to make us like Christ? 
where Bibles are only opened on pretty much one day of the week and the rest is just sort of hit and miss like a drive-by shooting. We might open our Bible and read it and most often than not we're, we're just going to leave it on a shelf on a nightstand. Why do we not engage ourselves in small groups? Why are we not putting ourselves in the presence of other Christians that we can mold with, that we can come alongside and do life with, that God can use to sharpen as iron sharpens iron? Why do we marginalize those things in our life? Why are we so content with the Lone Ranger mentality of our Christian walk where we're not coming alongside, we're not encouraging others, and we don't want any others to do the same in our lives? Even though it's one of the tools God uses to make us like Jesus. You know, for us to be the church God's called us to be, and to make the difference that Jesus died for us to make, then I believe we've got to begin asking and we've got to begin answering, grappling with some of these difficult questions. And maybe the heart of it is just simply the question, do we genuinely desire to see a work of God? Do we really honestly desire to see a work of God that is not reflected in new buildings, bigger budgets, more programs. But do we really want to see a work of God that results in changed lives? If not, if that's not your desire, I, I'm, I promise you I'm not trying to run you off. I hope you'll stick around even for the, the preaching. <laughs> I'm just trying to challenge your focus. If, if, we, if our desire is not to see God do a tremendous work here, then why are, are we here? I mean, if you're here and your desire, you don't care a thing about God making you like Christ. You don't care a thing about engaging with Him in worship. And if you don't care a thing really about being a part of God's work, and you don't want to see God's work. I mean, you could, you know, really give it or take it. God doing a work that changes the island, changes the community, changes the city, impacts the world, changes eternity for some. If you, if you really don't care about that, my question is, and this is just a logical, not a personal, just a logical question, then why, why are you here? Because I would only assume maybe that you're here just to check a box, that there's some form of gratification that you gain from coming on a Sunday morning, and you're here for an hour and a half, or maybe you throw in Sunday school there, and that three-hour block is a big enough box in your mind that you check to assume that everything is going to be okay with you between you and God, and He's going to bless you, He's going to keep you from bad things happening, and you're going to go your merry way and more or less live life on your own terms. But you came to church, and you were in attendance, and that's good enough for you. I'm assuming that if you don't want to see a work of God, that that's probably what's driving your life is just checking the box and keeping God happy. Before our first service, or during our first service, I was kind of standing back to the back since I didn't do the welcome this morning. Nathan did that, and sometimes in our services, if that's the case, I'll just stand in the back and greet some folks as they come in. And I was standing back there, and one of our ushers came up to me, and he, he had a dollar bill in his hand. He said, a he said, a person was walking across the property, because this is a good shortcut to get to a lot of places. He said, a guy was walking across the property, and he said, he gave me this dollar bill, and he said, put this in the offering plate. And I, and I asked, or the usher told me, I didn't ask him, he said, you know, I invited him to come on in and, and uh, you know, just to listen and to be a part of what was going on, but he said, no, he had to meet up with someone, but just please put this in the offering plate. You know, and, and I think, I don't know the person, I don't know who he was, and meet him, I certainly don't know his heart. But I would assume that there was some kind of a mentality there that says, put this in the offering plate, and behind it is the reasoning that this will make God happy. And this will check my own little box to keep things right between me and him. The problem is God doesn't work that way. God calls us to authenticity, and he calls us to surrender. And with people who are surrendered and who are authentic, not perfect, but authentic followers of Christ, 
I'm just telling you, based on Acts, God can shake the world. To understand what we're looking at here at the close of chapter 5, let's, let's try to gain a little bit of context. And so look back with me in chapter 5 in verse 12, and we'll just try to get a little context of what we're about to read to close out chapter 5. Chapter 5, verse 12 begins to give us a little context. It says, At the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were taking place among the people. And they were all with one accord in Solomon's portico, but none of the rest dared to associate with him. However, the people held them in high esteem. And all the more believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women, were constantly added to their number. And I think most of us would agree, just those three verses tells us that there was a genuine work of God that was being carried out here. God was working in the midst of these people. The time, the setting is the first century, and these are the early followers of Jesus after Christ had come and given his life on the cross and ascended, ultimately resurrected and ascended back to heaven. And so God is working. Look down at verse 17. Opposition arises. It says, But the high priest rose up along with all of his associates, that is, the sect of the Sadducees, a religious group there, and they were filled with jealousy. And they laid hands on the apostles and put them in a public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the gates of the prison, and taking them out, he said, Go, stand, and speak to the people in the temple the whole message of this life. All right, so the apostles are released from jail miraculously by God, they go and do the very thing, preaching the message of Jesus, that got them arrested in the first place. And we find as we move forward that we get a little bit more understanding of the context. Verse 26, Then the captain went along with the officers, and he proceeded to bring them back without violence, for they were afraid of the people that they might be stoned. And when they had brought them, they stood them before the council. The high priest questioned them, saying, We gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name. And yet you fill Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us, a reference to Jesus. But Peter and the apostles answered, and they said, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you had put to death by hanging him on a cross. And he is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we're witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. So a little bit of the context tells us that God is at work through the believers of this early church. They've come to Christ. They're living surrendered, sold out, authentic lives. They're not perfect, but they are living lives that are yielded to Jesus completely and fully. There is opposition that has begun to come, but they don't let it thwart the plan of God. They continue to preach. They continue to teach. And now we find that they are basically on trial yet again. And so that's where we pick up in chapter 5, verse 33. And we're going to read down through the end of the chapter. Once we get there, we'll pull out a couple of principles that I hope will give us a little understanding concerning a work of God. Chapter 5, verse 33. It says, When they heard this, that was the council, the ruling council, they were cut to the quick and were intending to slay them. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, respected by all the people, stood up in the council, and he gave orders to put the men outside for a short time. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you propose to do with these men. For some time ago, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a group of about 400 men joined up with him. But he was slain, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing." After this man, Judas of Galilee, rose up in the days of the census, and he drew away some people after him. He too perished, and all those who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I say to you, stay away from these men and let them alone. 
For if this plan or action is of men, it will be overthrown. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them, or else you may even be found fighting against God. Well, they took his advice, and after calling the apostles in, they flogged them and ordered them to speak no more in the name of Jesus, and then released them. And so they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Two principles that I want us to see this morning that come out of that passage that helps us in regards to a genuine work of God. The first principle is this, a work of God will face resistance. A work of God will face resistance. Now, you may say, Brooks, we've been here from the very beginning. This is, I don't know, the 15th, 16th sermon in Acts, I guess. We've been here from the beginning. That sounds familiar. I think we've heard this principle before. Probably so. Because what we do is we, basically, what I try to do is I try to just relay to you what the text first says. And all the way through the book of Acts, what we find is, is that the gospel message, as it is advanced, a genuine work of God will always face resistance. It's the way the enemy operates. And so it's not going to be the last time we're going to see this. A work of God will face resistance. Why is that? Because as surely as God exists, as surely as God exists in creation in this world, so also does the enemy, Satan himself, exist. Now, he is not the same as God. He is not equal with God. He is a created being. But as surely as God exists, so does the devil exist. And as we look at Scripture from start to finish, we find that historically, from the beginning through the end up until today, the enemy resists a genuine work of God. He did it whenever creation first was made. Adam and Eve, Garden of Eden, what does the enemy do? He tempts. He tempts concerning the authority of God's Word. Did God really say this? Adam and Eve sinned. And we've been suffering the effects of it ever since. You look at Moses, you look at the prophets, you look all the way through Scripture, Jesus' life and ministry, how the enemy came against him, resisted God's work through him. And when we look at the early church all the way up to today, the enemy resists a genuine work of God. Listen, it is no accident, understand this, it is no accident that in our world today, in our country today, that the abortion battle rages the way it does. Why? Because when you, look in the, when you hold up that abortion debate, that battle, in light of Genesis 127, where it says that God created man in his own image, it is no surprise that that debate rages because it is a resistance against the creative work of God in mankind. What God created, the enemy has devised a plan to try to obstruct and to try to damage and to try to ultimately destroy that creative work of God through this thing called abortion. It's not a surprise. It's the way the enemy operates. God forgives, God heals, God restores those that have been touched by that, by that tragic choice. It is a, a deception of the enemy. God thankfully does bring healing and God does bring forgiveness to those who have uh, been impacted by it. But it is a ploy by the enemy to resist the plan of God. You look in the battles that rage in our own country today in regards to sexuality, in regards to marriage and family. All those battles that rage today, they should not be a surprise. Why? Because of what God says in Genesis 1, verse 27. What does he say? Male and female, he created them. What does he say in Genesis chapter 2? He says that God calls a husband to leave his father or mother, to cling or to cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. God's laid it out there so clearly. It's no surprise that the debate that we experience in our country around marriage, around family, around sexuality, all centers upon the plan of God. It is, a, it is an attack by the enemy in resistance against God's creative work in regards to marriage and family. These are not political issues. These are spiritual issues. It's not a surprise that liberal theologians in these recent centuries 
have chosen to come against the authority of God, the veracity, truthfulness of God's Word. It's not a surprise that they've come against it full force to try to cast doubt on whether or not God's Word can even be trusted. Why is that not a surprise? Because he's been doing it from day one, the enemy has. And if he can just plant a seed of doubt in the hearts of people concerning the truthfulness of God's Word, then what it does is creates a tremendous chasm between us and God even, even deeper. And so it's a, another example of the resistance of the enemy against a genuine work of God. What does it say? Listen, Ephesians chapter 6. Don't turn, just listen. Ephesians 6 verse 12. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. And so in light of that, in light of that work of the enemy to resist a genuine work of God, we drop down the the local church. Let's start with this one. The Bible refers to us as the bride of Christ, those who have come to relationship with Jesus. You drop down into the midst of that whole context that we've looked at, the bride of Christ, the local church, First Baptist Church of the Islands, placed in a place where we are surrounded by the darkness of the enemy. Bad things happen on these islands all the time. People that are lost without Christ, people who intend good but without Jesus, they're lost, they're in need of a Savior. Lives that are being impacted, many of them that are living lives of success only to find out too late, if they're not careful, that they needed a Savior that they never heard about. And so you drop that bride of Christ, the body of Christ, the, the church, first better to the honest, down in the midst of that context. Why should we not expect that we are also going to somehow be free from resistance? No, resistance is going to come against the work of God here as well. There are going to be things to, that the enemy tries to do to, to confuse and to sidetrack and to discourage us as we seek to walk with God to see a genuine work of God come. You may be a new believer this morning, and I hope so. I hope we have a lot of new believers in the days to come. You may be a new believer just now beginning to walk a walk with God that you've never had before. You're excited. You're reading the Bible. You're learning. You're applying things. You're growing. Your whole mentality is different now. You've got joy you never had before. Or maybe you've been a Christian, but you've wandered, and God is really brought you back to a close walk with himself again. And man, it's just like a flower bloom. Man, you're just, think life is good. You're growing. Don't, here's what the enemy does. He will eventually come against you and he'll try to discourage you or he'll sidetrack you. And he's going to come against you. Why? Because God's working in your life and he's going to resist it. It's just a fact. Of, it's a law of the jungle. The enemy resists a genuine work of God. Here's the sad thing. And so hear me here. The sad thing is whenever the resistance to God's work comes through the very people God wants to use. What's tragic and what is sad is when a work of God is resisted by the very people who were part of the body of Christ to begin with. We see that a little bit here in this passage to a degree in Acts chapter 5. His name is Gamaliel. You'll notice him in verse 34. Now let me just preface this by saying Gamaliel was not a Christian. He was not a follower of Christ. That is the difference. He's not a perfect example of the body of Christ. He was not a follower of Jesus, but he is an example of an attitude that pervades the body of Christ today. Verse 34, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, respected by all the people, stood up in the council 
and gave orders to put the men outside for a short time. Gamaliel was a Pharisee. He was a rabbi. He was a member of the council, which when you see that referenced in Acts is a reference to the Sanhedrin. It was the highest ruling Jewish council of the first century. Seventy-one members strong. It was comprised of Pharisees and Sadducees alike, religious leaders in Jewish circles. Gamaliel was perhaps the most well-respected. It was presided over by the high priest. He was not the high priest, but extremely respected. We find later in Acts that it was Gamaliel who actually tutored Paul. He was a mentor to the apostle Paul before Paul stepped out of Judaism and into a relationship with Christ. He was so respected that we see here in this passage that when he spoke, the entire council, all 70 remaining members, listened to what he had to say. And yet when we look at Gamaliel, his words were not an example of wisdom. His words were an example of indifference. He mentions two men that would have been prominent in the first century who had recently, to some degree, been a part of an uprising or a rebellion not necessarily even associated with the gospel. One man he names is a man named Thutis, another is a man he names as Judas of Galilee. Both of these men had followings, they had causes that they stood for, and once these men were killed, then their followers scattered. What, what Gamaliel does here is he actually steps into very dangerous territory because he is approaching this whole thing concerning Christ and the gospel message from a very pragmatic perspective. He's saying if it, can, if it succeeds, it's, it is of God, but if it fails, it's not. That is very dangerous. Why is that? Because, well, for one, one of the fastest growing religions on the face of the earth today is Islam. <laughs> the God of Islam is not the same as the God of the Bible, regardless of what you may hear on stations like CNN and the like when they discuss these kinds of things. You're not talking about the same God, and yet it's one of the fastest growing, if not the fastest growing, religion on the face of the earth. One of the cults that grows faster than any other worldwide is the Mormon church. It carries the title church, but it's not a church in the New Testament sense. Jesus is not the same Jesus of the New Testament. God is not the same God of the New Testament. Completely, it's not apples to apples. It's a completely different ballgame, and yet uses a lot of the same terminology. It's very dangerous to say if it succeeds, it's of God. That's not, that's not practical. It's not even accurate. What Gamaliel does here is that he extends an argument that makes no sense, but what he reveals is his own indifference in his life. Now, follow me on this. Gamaliel, in this portion of the book of Acts, would more than likely have been very familiar with Jesus. Possibly had even crossed paths with Jesus. This is early in the New Testament church. He certainly rubbed shoulders with Paul because he trained him. He was familiar with these apostles because he is presiding over their trial. He had seen the signs and wonders. He had heard the messages they preached. He knew full well, because of who he was, what their message was about. And he had every opportunity that close to the gospel to choose to embrace it and to follow Jesus. But instead, what he did was he chose to find the neutral ground. And rather than embracing Christ, he chose an attitude of indifference that said, oh, let's just see what comes of it, and then we'll make our conclusion. Now, let me just say that there is not a far distance between Gamaliel's attitude and a lot of the attitude of many Christians today in our own culture. In fact, if we're not careful, we can perhaps even begin to display that attitude ourselves because what's the difference between what Gamaliel said, let's just wait and see, and the person today in a church just like this one who says, oh, I don't have to go share the gospel with that person because if God really wants them saved, I'm sure he'll send somebody their way. It's an attitude of indifference. 
Oh, I know there's a need in the Philippines. I know there's an opportunity for me to give to help expand a ministry somewhere else in the world, somewhere here locally. But I know that there'll be somebody, I'm sure, who'll give. I don't want to get off of my wallet and give because, after all, if God really wants this to happen, I'm sure he'll raise up somebody. You see, there's not a real far distance between Gamaliel's perspective of indifference and the indifference that many of us are tempted to embrace on an ongoing basis as a part of the body of Christ, even right here today. And if we're not careful, we'll embrace a mentality that says, if God really wants to reach people, if he really wants to change these islands, if he really wants to make a difference in this city, if he really wants to impact eternity, there are plenty of other Christians here that he can choose to use. But as for me, I'm going to chase my dream My life is off limits. God can use somebody else because if it's really of him, I'll see it in the end. And what we do is we cross our arms and we say, God, just please continue to bless me because after all, it's more about me than it is you. And what happens is, is a genuine work of God gets resisted by the very people God has called to be a part of it. The question we must wrestle with in addition to the others is, do I truly want to see a work of God or am I more content to continue in a selfish, comfort-driven, self-focused, so-called walk with God? Or am I willing to give what it takes? to impact the islands and beyond, one life at a time, for the cause of Christ. A work of God will face resistance. Principle two, and we're done. A work of God is often carried out through fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. You've heard me say before, God did his best work on the cross and in the resurrection. He does his best work since then through the power of the Holy Spirit working in the lives of people. But much of the work God chooses to do in this society beginning right here, he does through the lives of people that are fully devoted to himself. Look in verse 41 and verse 42. Speaking of these early apostles, they had just been flogged, verse 40 tells us. That is much more harsh than maybe what we read into it. (laughs) It's easy to read they were flogged. It's harder to stop and think what that was like. It was 39 lashes by people who were skilled and trained at doing that. Would have brought them very possibly, obviously, to a point of great pain and and an example of tremendous persecution, if not had been life-threatening as well. What was the result of it? Verse 41, they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. Comfort-driven? Absolutely not. Self-serving? Absolutely not. They were yielded to God and committed to His work. By the way, let me just say that the mere being in the presence of the council would have been intimidating enough. I mean, you're talking, these, these early apostles, these are Jewish, Jewish people, saved out of Judaism, brought into relationship with the Messiah. You put these men... You put these men in the presence of this Sanhedrin, this ruling council. These were men that these Jewish apostles had been taught about and had been familiar with through their whole entire upbringing. 
Yes, they had moved from Judaism to Christianity. They had embraced and surrendered to Jesus as their Savior. But you can't help but understand that these guys probably still held and to some degree in high regard the members of the Sanhedrin, the 71 members, Pharisees and Sadducees alike, these, the, the rulers of Jewish society in their day, just to be in their presence, standing as the odd man out, proclaiming the name of Christ, surrounded by 71 of the highest-ranking men in Jewish circles of that day. You think that wasn't intimidating? And on top of that, they get beat for proclaiming the name of Christ. And yet, what was their response? They went out, they counted their persecution as equal to rejoicing. And then verse 42, we find, if you want to see a, a great definition of the evangelism or the evangelistic program, if you want to use that terminology, I don't like that word a lot, but if you want to see the, an example of what evangelism looked like in the first century church, it's in verse 42. How often did they do it? Every day. Where did they do it? They were in the temple, the place where worship took place from a Jewish perspective, and they went from house to house. In other words, they went where the lost people were, and they also engaged it as a part of their daily routine. The frequency was every day. The location was in the temple and from house to house. What was their method? They did two things. They were teaching and they were preaching. The Greek word for preaching is the Greek word from which we get our English word evangelism. It's used 15 times in the book of Acts. And it simply means to proclaim the good news, the good news of the gospel. And so everywhere they went, every day, they proclaimed the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, how he, being God, died on the cross, rose from the dead, so that all who turn from their sin and surrender to him can be forgiven and saved and made right with God forever. That was their message. It was a simple message. They proclaimed it in preaching. They taught it as instruction. And it was nothing added to it, nothing taking away, that Jesus Christ, or Jesus is the Christ. That's what they did. And God changed the world.